Friends, what if we actually believed the words of that song were true? I mean, like, really, really deep down, what if we believed that God was good and that his love was totally undeniable, that his goodness, like, blew our minds so that we could hardly even think about anything else? What if it were true? We're asking a series of uh, deep and difficult questions about God this fall uh, at Elmhurst Christian Reformed Church. Last week, Rev led us an examination of the question, what is God really like? And we heard about an almighty God who is omnipotent and omnipresent and immutable, immortal, unchangeable, an awesome God who is also love, love, love. And that begs a second question. If God is that big and awesome and mysterious and incomprehensible, could a God like that be interested in a little person like me? Could the maker of the universe somehow care about a little life like, like yours? Uh, before my family moved to the western suburbs of Chicago eight years ago, we lived in a little beach town in Michigan called Ludington. Uh, lovely place. There's only like 12,000 people there. Um, and we were part of planting and starting a new church in that town. And uh, most days, um, when I was kind of done with the ordinary part of the day's work at the end of the afternoon or early evening, we were close enough to Lake Michigan that I would either walk a couple blocks or drive my car to a place called Stearns Park, and uh, I would just sit there for five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, like whatever it took. And sitting in front of Lake Michigan, for me, does something, it does something to my spirit. It makes me feel both awe at how huge and beautiful and majestic the lake is, and it makes me feel as a person uh, kind of appropriately humble and simple and small. And uh, I wonder if you've ever had that feeling, maybe at Lake Michigan, maybe in the mountains, maybe someplace else where you feel like, oh man, this scenery, it's incredible. And if somebody made this, that person must be incredible. And then also feeling this corresponding feeling of appropriate smallness. You know what I'm talking about? Awe and small. All at the same time. Um, Lake Michigan does it for me. I'm convinced this is why some people go camping or hunting or sit in a fishing boat or, you know, like to backpack in the mountains. Like, it's a rare place in urban life where we feel awe and small at the same time. There's a picture here that I pulled out of uh, a little scientific article of the Milky Way. Starlight is another thing that gives us this sense, right? Have you ever been on a clear Rocky Mountain night? like high enough so that you can see millions of stars and this white stream that flows through the universe that we call the Milky Way? 80% of Americans will not see the Milky Way this year. I've read a couple scientific articles recently, sociological articles. This does not have a good effect on the human mind. Okay? Scientists tell us, they have noted that now, there is a direct link between the amount of starlight a society experiences and crime rates. 
If we don't have a sense of awe and our small place in the world, it's easier for us to conclude that we are the center of the universe. And if I am at the center of the universe, why shouldn't I not do whatever I want, whenever I want to do it? God has designed us to be in awe of the majesty of his creation and also feel appropriately small. Now, we can also feel inappropriately small. We call this uh, hopelessness or despair. I mean, this is when, like, maybe we have a bad day or can go on for seasons where we feel like we just don't plain matter because there's so many people and the world is so big and just no one cares and why does my life matter anyways? Were any of you on TV this week? Maybe a couple? I, did anybody write a newspaper article about you that ended up on the front page of the Chicago Tribune this week? No? Even if they did, like a year from now or for sure 10 years from now, nobody will remember and no one will care. Like, don't feel bad. That's just how it is. We're, there's a billion people. Most of our work happens in private and goes unnoticed. If the world is a beach... We are a tiny grain of sand on that beach. But that ought not to cause us despair. That is not the view of Christianity. That is not the view of the Bible. That is not the view I want to share with you today. What I am talking about is appropriate smallness. And this sense is beautifully and poetically expressed in Psalm 8, which we've sung, which we've read already. Uh, The Bible puts it this way. When I gaze to the skies and meditate on your creation, on the moon and the stars and all that you have made, God, I can't help but to wonder why you care about mortals, me, sons and daughters of men, specks of dust floating around the cosmos. And this is the question for us this morning. What are we mortals? Who are we Could it be true that we are loved by the one who spun the galaxies and stars and everything into place? Could it be that he is a good, good father and cares about us personally? Now, back in January, our congregation spent four weeks working through a great book called Mere Christianity, and we spent four weeks kind of building a a rational case from the evidence in the universe and from the evidence of a moral law or a sense of right and wrong that is inscribed on the human heart, a four-step case of how it is that God is not just out there but intimately involved in loving us. It's not watertight, but you can build a rational and philosophical case. We don't have time to do that this morning. As a different approach, I am going to share with you um, a number of scriptures usually don't do this in sermons. I'm actually going to share about seven scriptures in a row. It's like a shotgun blast of scripture that responds to this question, could God really be interested and care about me? Now, the stakes of this question are really, really high, how we answer this question. Now, 500 years ago, there was a philosopher named Blaise Pascal, and he put it this way. You know, if I live like I believe in God, like a person of faith, and it turns out that there is no God or that he doesn't care about us in the end, if my life is just over when I die, how much do I lose? 
by living my 40 or 50 or 80 years as a person of faith. I don't lose all that much, right? Maybe I could have a little more selfish, hedonistic pleasure during my decades here, but living as a person of faith, if there is nothing else, you don't lose all that much. However, if the reverse happens, if I live like I am the center of the universe, and it turns out that by denying God, I miss out on an eternity of joy and uh, harmony, shalom in the presence of God. Like, if we get that wrong in this life and the, and the dark side of the gospel is true, that we need to know Jesus in this life in order to know him forever, then that is a huge miss. Now, this argument has never convinced anybody to believe. I simply mention it because how we answer this question, God, do you really care about me? And am I going to respond by believing it and caring about you? The stakes of how we answer that question are extraordinarily and eternally high. So you're ready for some scripture? It's coming at you hard. Okay, if you are a note taker or, uh, you know, maybe just one of these is what you need to hear today. If it is, write it on your hand, write it on something and take it from this place. So in the very first story in the Bible after creation, there is a man and a woman, Adam and Eve. God has placed them in paradise in a garden, and there is one rule. Don't eat of the fruit of the tree of life. And of course, they do. And we've been doing the same thing ever since. And uh, the, the punishment for this is that now they are sinful and broken We've inherited this whole thing, and they have to leave the Garden of Eden. They realize that they're naked in this morning and put in this moment and put together some uh, impromptu fig leaf clothing. And there's this really crucial little detail that as Adam and Eve are leaving the Garden of Eden, leaving paradise, God gives them a gift. He gives them their first real set of clothes. The Bible says that God gives them the skins of animals which they could then wear as clothing. Huh, quirky little detail, right? It's really amazing because Adam and Eve had broken the heart of God and now they're about to go out into the cruel, cold world. And even in that moment, God is not just washing his hands of them, but he's saying, I'm still here to provide for you, to protect you. I still love you. Here is a gift to help keep you warm in the cold world that you're about to enter. And God has been doing the same thing for human beings ever since, giving us little signs of grace, of providence, of protection in a brutal, broken world. Sometimes we think that the law of God, that God is like a traffic cop, that he's waiting us for blow a stop sign, to speed a little bit, that God takes great pleasure in pulling us over, writing us up, kicking us in the shins, telling us you are really bad, don't do it again. We, some of us really have this concept of God on a deep, deep level. This is not how the law of God works. The law of God is like a sign at the side of the road that says, caution, road ends in 1,000 feet, cliff upcoming. That is what the law of God is like. It's like a warning sign to save us from driving off the cliff that would be our life lived under our own set of rules. You hear what I'm saying? God, from the very first story in the Bible, even though we screwed everything up, 
is giving a kind and gracious gift to his people. Psalm 139. At our house, we read this psalm on everybody's birthday. This psalm says that you and I are fearfully and wonderfully made. It says that God created my inmost being and that I was knit together in my mother's womb. Does this sound like a God who is just up there from a distance watching us? Hmm, I wonder what they're going to do next. Psalm 139 paints a picture of God who was there from the time your first cells were developing inside the uterus of your mother. Like, that's a care and attention and love that goes as deep as words can describe. Before you had, before you took your first breath, before you were conscious, before your father or mother even knew you were growing inside your mother's belly, God knew you and loved you. Psalm 56 says this, that God keeps a record of our misery and stores up our tears in a wineskin or in a bottle. I'll say it again. God stores up our tears in a bottle. Now, a huge, probably the biggest hurdle for any of us really believing that God could love us deep, deep down is that we have been hurt, we have been scarred, People have told us things that we cannot unhear, sometimes in the house that we grew up. Some of us grew up in houses where our dad or mom or a sibling told us very regularly, you're stupid. You are not worth anything. You're ugly. Why even try? There was a woman speaking here on Wednesday who said that in her house, she got the message from her parents, literally, you're so ugly that we'll pay for plastic surgery when you're an adolescent if you're a really good girl. How do you unhear those kind of things? How can you believe that a huge invisible person called God can love you and care about you when the flesh and blood people in your life don't? This is a huge hurdle to faith in God. But God says this about our hurts and the things that devastated us and reduced us. God says, I am there. I was there making a record of your misery and collecting your tears in a bottle. Why would God do that? God is in the presence of our suffering and hurt. He remembers it and stores it so that he can redeem it and reconstitute it and transform it into something that if we will allow him to, will be part of our glory, our unique glory, both in the life to come and if we're really, really open to it already in this life. Have you ever met, any, met someone who had something horrible happen to them in the past, but who that, through that experience in suffering was transformed and whose wound became something especially lovely and inviting and winning about them? Have you ever met a person like that? It is the grace of God that did that for that person, and it is the grace of God that can do that for you. 
In Isaiah chapter 49, God asks a question. Can a mother forget her child? No. But then God says, even if a mother could forget her child, people, I will never forget you. See, I have engraved your name on the palm of my hand. Now, sometimes I write stuff on my hands, like usually in Sharpie, like a, what I'm, whatever I'm about to forget to do later in the day. God's not talking about that kind of superficial keeping track of. God is talking about like inscribing, engraving your name on the palm of his hand so that every time God opens his hand to provide something or share something, he thinks, oh yeah, I love Lisa. Every time God opens his hand in blessing toward the world, he thinks, oh yeah, Mike, he's my favorite. Now, would it be possible for you to think, this sounds very unhumble, I am God's favorite. Can I say this about myself? Like with a clean conscience, I am God's favorite. Without diminishing you? I mean, this is one of the remarkable things that God is eternal. Time and space, he is everywhere, and all time is one moment to him. God has all the time in the universe for each of us. And if you believe it, he lavishes it on each of us so we can, I believe, each say, I am God's favorite without diminishing anybody else. It's like if you lie on the beach under a Florida sun and you soak up the rays, you are in no way detracting from the suntanning experience of anyone else on that beach. You know what I'm saying? Because there's enough sunlight to go around. It is like this, but infinitely more with the love of God. There is so much that as much as you can soak in, there's an infinite supply so you don't diminish anybody else's experience of the love of God. If you'll believe it, this morning, you are God's favorite. Except that I am. <laughs> when Jesus came and walked the earth, uh, there was a night that he stayed up the entire night praying and then he came down and he named, he named the 12 who would be his disciples. By name, he called them out. Many of them he gave nicknames as well. These two brothers, James and John, became known as the Sons of Thunder. This is what Jesus called him, a.k.a. the Loudmouth Brothers. I like to think that ever since then, I mean, we are Jesus' disciples, and he names us in the waters of baptism, the very same way that he named those first 12 when he stayed up all night praying. Can you imagine that when you came to Christ, it was Jesus saying, Jim. It was Jesus saying, Beth. That's how you got in. It wasn't you. It's because Jesus called your name. Maybe he was just looking at his hand. There it is. There you are. After Jesus rose from the dead, at the end of the Gospel of John, Jesus names another disciple, female disciple, and he says her name, Mary. And in that moment, the whole universe changes for her. Because in, in hearing the voice of the master, she realizes he's alive. And she realizes 
if he's alive, it's okay. And she realizes, if he's alive, he still loves me. If he's alive, everything is going to work out. Friends, can you imagine that Jesus Christ, even today, is speaking your name in that kind of way? Because he is, if by faith you can believe it, Jesus in the throne room of heaven is saying, Mac. Jesus in the throne room of heaven is saying, Lori. And if you can just hear a tiny whisper of that, it will reorient our perspective in the whole universe so that we can believe not just in our head or the words just come out of our mouth, but deep down in our soul that it's all going to be okay. I want to find, share a final bit of scripture with you. Uh, it's, it's a little paradox, actually, and it is these two phrases, that it is true that we are both in Christ and that Christ is in us. We're a little more comfortable, I think, speaking about being in Christ. When we are baptized, we are baptized into the body of Christ, the church. We are all members of a great big body. We are in Christ. But scripture also talks about how Christ is in us, both in the church as a whole, but Christ is in you. Does God love us personally? He loves us so much that he is inside of you. I mean, in your bloodstream, in your DNA, in the deepest part of you that you can't even see or name. God is not just interested in us, not just interested in you. He is living in you. The Apostle Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives inside of me. He also says to the Colossians, put your faith in Christ, Christ who is in you, who is the hope of glory. And to the Corinthian church who are driving the Apostle Paul nuts, who are very much like us in so many ways, the Apostle Paul writes about the difference that Christ being in us makes. He says, do you not realize that Christ Jesus, people, is in you? So what difference does this make? Because Jesus Christ is in me, my mortality is going to be transformed into immortality. Because Christ is in me, my sinfulness is going to be changed into sinlessness. Because Christ is in you, your brokenness will be transformed into sturdiness and permanence and strength. Because Christ is in you, your disability, your current disability, is going to be reconstituted into fantastic ability. Who am I? I'm small. I'm a mortal. A mortal. <laughs> who are you, God? You are the one who became mortal for my sake in order to give me the gift of eternal life and immortality. Who am I? I am small. I am a sinner. Who are you? You are the one who became sin on the cross 
for us and suffered and died so that you could wipe the record of sin clean. Who am I? I am small. I am a broken down guy. Who are you? You were broken on the cross in order to bring wholeness and life and love to each of us. Who am I? I am small. I am not able to do it or make it on my own. Who are you, God? You are the one who makes strength work through weakness, who makes strength work through suffering, who brings beauty from the ashes. Your grace is sufficient for me. To sum up all this shotgun blast of scripture, I could simply say, Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. Now, there is one final proof. It's very compelling to me, but is highly subjective, that God is interested in a tiny person like me. And it is uh, the eyes of love or the face of love of someone who has experienced the love of God and then looked at me. Have you ever looked into the eyes of a person and recognized that they were 100% on your side, that they cared about you so much that their only agenda in being with you and being present with you and looking at you in that moment was to love you I hope you've had that experience. Not all of us have. Um, there's a Roman Catholic uh, person, Father Reniero Cantalamesa, that I like to read from time to time. He had this experience recently on a train. I mean, he's dressed up like a Roman Catholic father, right? And everybody knows what job he has. He's sitting on a train, and a woman comes up to him and says, this is an unbelieving woman, Father, I've been watching you on this train ride and your face, it compels me to believe that God loves me. Have you ever seen a person's face like that? I mean, a person who was shining with the kindness of being loved by God so that the reflection of that bright sun found you in its light. Wouldn't it be awesome if we scattered around Chicago and the western suburbs this week and our faces, because of our faith in God, reflected that kind of love? If when we had a work conversation, we looked people, uh, not creepily, but, you know, so <laughs> truly and yet deeply in the eye that they knew there was something behind it. May God bless you with that experience, both seeing it and sharing it. Friends, there's been a lot of words this morning, but the best ones are the words of this old kid song. Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. Will you say this with me? Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. Amen. Will you pray with me? Lord, thank you that you are not just up in heaven watching from a distance. Thank you for coming near to us in Jesus Christ. And thank you for living in us through the Spirit 
of Jesus Christ. God, give us the grace to make our home in you and abide in you and let you fill up our souls and our spirits for Jesus' sake. Amen. In just a couple minutes, church, I'm going to invite the deacons forward to receive.